are the one, the one alone who can cleanse and purify our hearts through the blood of Christ. Without that blood, we have no standing. We have no right to be in your presence. So we give thanks for the purifying blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we just pray this morning as we focus our attention on your word that we would see him, that we would see his work, and that you would convince us, maybe for the first time this morning or anew, if that's what is needed, that you call us to purity, you call us to holiness. Call us to growth and complete dependence upon you. Pray that that would characterize our lives and that your spirit would work these words into our hearts today and that we would acknowledge the place that you deserve in our lives, the place that you must have in our lives in order to please you. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. You don't have to come to Mossbrook Church very long before you know that I'm a bit of a statistics junkie. Uh, That was born out of hours and hours and hours of my youth dedicated to looking at the backs of baseball cards and uh, football cards and basketball cards and hockey cards and all those kinds of things. I've transitioned a little bit to a little bit more maturity and usefulness and my number crunching and gathering. Uh, But there's some interesting statistics coming out of the United States of America right now. One of them that caught my attention as I was reading a website the other day was that the divorce rate in the United States is dropping. Uh, you probably heard for years, maybe even decades, many people saying, well, 50% of marriages end in divorce. Um, in the 80s, divorce reached its peak statistically, and it was slightly over 50% in the 80s. But since then, it has been steadily dropping to the point now, the last numbers that we have from about 2017 are telling us that the divorce rate is actually down to about 40%. So it has dropped almost 10% over the last 25 or 30 years, which sounds like really good news until you keep digging a little bit further, a little bit deeper, and you realize that part of the reason the divorce rate is dropping is because the marriage rate is dropping. Less and less people are getting married. And when you keep going along this train of thought, we realize that One in four adults in the United States under the age of 25 are living with somebody that they're not married to. One in four under 25. The rest of the news really isn't that great either. 60 to 65% of second marriages end in divorce, so it increases with the number of marriages. 20% of married Americans, one in five in the United States right now have cheated on their spouse, one in five. 43% of all kids in the United States are being raised without their fathers, 43%. Pornography is a $97 billion a year business just in the United States, not talking about worldwide. I could go on. 
human trafficking, prostitution, it's rampant. We live in a truly immoral time. In fact, our country really, the United States is really functioning for the most part without any kind of standard of morality. I'm sure that some of you have heard just being consumers of media on whatever level you are, whether it's the news or social media or what have you, newspapers, the internet, television news. If I don't know, does anybody watch the news on TV anymore? A few people probably out there, I guess. They still put it on there, so somebody probably watches it. Um, one of the most popular television shows of our time just ended a couple of weeks ago. It was called Game of Thrones. I haven't watched any Game of Thrones myself, but I've heard a lot of people talking about it. This is no fringe thing. This is a mainstream television show, widely watched, discussed on social media and the news and entertainment uh, media as well, of course, with a huge viewership. I did a little bit of digging because I was hearing a little bit about what this show was like and what it was about, so I did a little bit of research and I learned that in this television show, there were seven scenes of rape and 39 scenes of nudity in season one. And it ran for eight seasons, just ended a couple of weeks ago. This is, this is not fringe. This is completely acceptable and mainstream in our society here in the United States. Along with every other kind of blatant sexuality, homosexuality, transgenderism, and every other perversion of God's design for purity. So what about us? What about us as Christ followers, for those of us here this morning that profess to be Christ followers, what about us here in the United States in 2019? What are our lives supposed to look like in this sea of immorality that we live into the middle of? What does God want for us? I want to suggest to you this morning that God is calling us to live distinctly from the filth of this world. And if you want to put a big idea on this time that we have together over the next few minutes, it's this, that God's will for us is our progression in holiness. When God looks at this world, when he looks at the country of the United States of America, when he looks at the state of Maine, when he continues to zoom in and he sees the Oxford Hills and he looks down and he sees this family of believers here this morning, what God wants for us is to progress in our holiness. He wants us to become more like Christ in the middle of all of this mess that's going on around us. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians, if you've been here the last few weeks and have been kind of following along, and we've been reading these words that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in a city, a seaport named Thessalonica. This was a church that Paul and Silas planted, and then they were, remember, forced to leave because it was causing such an uproar 
By the way, think about this in terms of what we're going to talk about this morning and what I've just described to you that God's will for us is. What happened really, the reason why these guys were driven out of Thessalonica, had to literally leave in fear of losing their lives, was because the gospel that they were preaching, the truths that they were sharing with people, was transforming these people's lives. And it was causing such a scene in the city that people were getting upset. And they didn't like it. And they forced Paul and Silas to leave. So Paul is writing back to them. And in the first three chapters, we've seen that he is commending them. And he's encouraging them. I'm so thankful to know that you have come to faith. I'm thankful to know that you are growing. I'm thankful to know that you are praying for each other, as Tim was talking to us about last week. I'm thankful that you're connected and that you're growing these bonds together. But in chapters 4 and 5, which we're going to start looking at today, Paul shifts gears. And he's really going to dive in and challenge them. Challenge them and us. And what he's going to say to them is, don't be satisfied. You see, it's really easy to get to a point in our lives if we've trusted Christ and we become perhaps a part of a church like this one here or somewhere else, we read our Bibles and we're part of a group or not and we're doing some things, it's easy for us to be satisfied with that and say, there, see, I've done it. I know God and I'm all set. It's tempting to do that, but Paul says you've got, you got to make sure that you're not satisfied You can't stay there. You've got to keep going. In these next two chapters, Paul is challenging them to strive for excellence in their faith and to strive for growth. Let's look at it here in the next few minutes that we have. I'm going to start reading in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to read the first eight verses over the next few minutes, and we'll just pause as we go through to notice what Paul is saying to them and to us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you should do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So when he comes to When you come to this first part of chapter 4, it says, finally then, brothers, that doesn't mean that he's almost done. (laughs) Finally doesn't mean, it's just like when Tim is teaching and he says, now I'm going to wrap this up and he talks for 10 more minutes, you know, or whatever. It's just kind of like that. It's kind of like that. I really need to say this just before Tim goes on vacation, then he can't get me coming back the other side. But he's got a good memory, so he'll remember I did that. It's not like that where we're wrapping it up. He's saying, because of everything that I've told you here, now think about this. In other words, everything that I've said before about your faith and your growth and the connections and your passion, that's all good. And so, now let me tell you this. The things that I've told you so that you can walk and please God, walk and please God in the Hebrew culture and in the Hebrew language. This was written in Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek, but the Jews by and large spoke Hebrew as well. It was part of their culture. And in the Jewish 
culture, walking was a euphemism for living. You know, we say things like, hey, how's your, you know, how's it going? How's your life? They would say, how's your walk? How you walking? Okay? It was a euphemism for their lives, walking and pleasing. And I like the picture of walking because how do you walk? You walk one step at a time, right? You put one foot in front of the other. And sometimes maybe you get up in the morning and you think that's all I got is one step. One step at a time. I'm going to go here and then I'm going to go here. But it's a beautiful picture of the Christian life. And Paul says you need to walk and please God one step at a time in every area of your life. Be obedient. The other thing that we have to notice when we think about it, about the Christian life being a walk, is that it's not a stop, it's a continuing. We've said this before. Tim and I have both said it. I'm sure Tom has said it when he's been teaching, and you've heard other people say it maybe, that salvation is not the end of the Christian life, it's the beginning. It's the beginning. Salvation is not just about, we talked about this in our Theology 101 class, for those of you that were a part of that over the last few weeks, we said this, that salvation is is not just about the day you get saved and the day you die, it's about every day in between. And that's what Paul's talking about here. We talked uh, the other night in one of those classes, that's why we call it the growth process, not the growth automatic download. Right? You get those notifications on your phone. I do too. And it says it's time to update your operating system. It just happens. I don't ask for it. I don't look for it. And then I just press the button and I don't do anything except wait 45 minutes to use my phone again. And it does it all by itself. It's automatic. And I'm so thankful because if you looked at pages and pages of code, how would I be able to import that? I can't. It's an automatic download. That's great. Well, that's not the way the Christian life works. It's not an automatic download. It's a process of growth, and that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, you need to keep growing. Now, notice that it wasn't that they weren't serving God. As we've seen the last few weeks, as Tim has taught us through those last few weeks, they were serving God, right? Remember, he said, you know, I went to this town, and I tried to tell them about the gospel. I said, we've already heard it. Those Thessalonians are spreading it all over the place. So I'm here this morning telling you because Paul told them and he's in turn telling us, I'm not saying that you're not doing it, that you're not living for God, that you're not making good choices, that you're not making decisions that cause you to be distinct from the world, but I'm going to tell you what Paul says and that is you got to do it more and more. So how about you in your faith? Are you progressing Are you growing or are you static? Because that's Paul's concern here. The concern wasn't that these people had never done anything right and were were lousy in their faith. No, they they were growing. They were moving. They were were serving. But he says you got to keep going. You got to abound more and more. For as you know, he says, I've already given you the truth. We have the truth. We have it in our hands. Literally, we have it in our hands. 
If you have a Bible in your hands this morning, or if you have your smartphone or your iPad in your hands this morning and you've got your Bible app open, or you go home and you look on your nightstand or on your desk, you literally have the truth in your hands. And that's what Paul tells them. Look, this is not about saying, I don't know what I should do, because you have the truth. We have it. We have responsibility to know what it says. I want you to notice in verse 3, that was our reminder. Paul gives us our reminder. Now we see our future. In the first part of verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. How often do we ask, what does the Lord want me to do here? Now, clearly for this moment for this section of what I'm talking about. I'm talking to those of you who are Christ followers. If you're not a Christ follower here this morning, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, then you have no idea what I'm talking about. And you're saying, I don't ask God what to do. I just figure out what I'm supposed to do. But if you're a Christ follower, hopefully you're asking yourself, what does God want me to do here? What's the right thing to do? How many people in the last week at least once have said, I wonder what the right thing to do is here? I wonder what God wants me to do here. That's what we should be asking ourselves. Now, Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is really important for us as Christ followers. When we face a decision, we come to that question and we say, what is the right decision? Here is a definitive answer for us. Your sanctification your progression in holiness. We talked about this. I can't keep track. I probably should look back in my notes, but it's probably been a couple of years ago now. For those of you that were here, we, we spent a few weeks, Tim and I did, and we were talking about big words from the Bible. Does anybody remember that at all? Okay, four people. We're doing good, Tim. <laughs> big words from the Bible. Okay, I'm not even going to ask you if you remember what they were or what they meant, but trust me when I tell you that one of them was sanctification. And we talked about sanctification. We said sanctification is really progression in holiness. It's the process. Uh, Tom and I were talking about it before. It's actually a kind of a two-stage. When we are saved, God sanctifies us. That is, he looks down at us and he sees us as holy because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank goodness for that. No holiness in me, but because the Father sees me through the blood of Jesus Christ, he considers me holy. I'm very thankful. However, another aspect of sanctification is the fact that even though God considers me holy because of what Jesus has done every day as days go on, I'm not consistently very practically holy. I get angry. I get impatient. I have a lustful thought. I get selfish. I get discouraged. I worry. I have anxiety. All of those things. And so there is a progression in our holiness by which I need to, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a truster of Christ, continue to walk and advance in my trust of him more and more so I can leave those old patterns and ways behind and be more like Christ. And that's what he's talking about here when he says sanctification, our progression in holiness. So here's what I like about this statement. For this is God's will, and I always picture it, 
dot, dot, dot. And everybody's like, yeah. Because I want to know what God's will is. I want to know what I'm supposed to do. Paul goes, your sanctification. That's God's will. End of sentence. Period. Now, I know you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, that's great, Mike. Congratulations on figuring that out for us and sharing it with us. Now, on to more helpful matters, if you have them, please. Um, because you're thinking, well, okay, the, this is the will of God, your sanctification, but how do I know if I'm supposed to buy that house? Or if I'm supposed to marry this guy or that girl? Am I supposed to take this job, leave this one, move here, stay here? How do I educate my kids? How do I spend my money? That's the stuff I'm concerned about. The will of God, your sanctification, wonderful. But how do I know what to do today with this very practical thing that's sitting in front of me? Obviously, I don't know every specific situation that you're facing. No one could. No one does. But the answer to whatever that specific situation is that you're facing, the house to buy, the person to marry, how to educate your children, how to raise your children, how to spend your money, whatever it is that you're doing right now, the answer is always the choice, because it's always a choice, right? There's always two avenues you could take, two ways you could go. The answer is always the choice that causes you to love God more. It's always the choice that causes you to pursue spiritual knowledge and growth. It's always the choice that allows you to have more time to care for your family it's always the choice that allows you to have more freedom to love and serve other people. The right choice is always the one that causes you to live and act and be more like Jesus. Okay? Are you following me? I'm dubious. Because I see a lot of blank looks. That might just be the sleep talking, I don't know. But the right choice is always the one that causes you to live and act and be more like Jesus. Let me give you an example. Okay? You're driving your car. You're driving your, what is it, 2019? You're driving your 2008 <laughs> Nissan Sentra with 250,000 miles on it. And you're pretty sure on your way home last night it made a sound you've never heard before. So you're thinking, you know what? I deserve a new car. So you drive to the dealership and you look at 2019 Nissan Sentras and they're $24,000. And you know that to buy that car, you're going to have to take out a five-year loan with $500 a month payments. It's the only way. 
But you're a Christ follower. You want to do what's right. You don't want to do something stupid. So you ask yourself, what is the right choice? What is God's will for me in this situation? I think our principle this morning applies. Because I can let, you say, it's just a car. God doesn't care about my car. Well, I'm not so sure. I think God's a Toyota fan, but I'm not (laughs) positive about that. There are other nice cars in the world. I'm not sure he cares about what kind of car you drive. But you know what God is concerned about? He's concerned about, in this situation, perhaps, putting extra financial pressure on your family, which causes you to have to take overtime hours that you really shouldn't take because it adds to the stress at home and the relationship with your spouse and not being able to care for your kids and not being able to be generous with other people around you who need help. Does that make any sense? What's God's will? Your sanctification. Is buying the car and taking the $500 a month payments for five years, is that going to help you to act and live and be more like Jesus or not? Now, I'm not going to tell you which one you should do because I'm not trying to nose into your finances. But I am telling you that this principle applies to every area of your life. Because every decision that you and I make affects every area of our lives. It's just a car. It's just a house. No, it's not. It's your life. And every decision you make affects every future decision. I buy the car. I sign the papers. I take the loan. I have to make the payments. I'm short this month. I have to take the extra work. I can't go to church anymore because I have to work on Sundays and make time and a half. Or I can't go to small group anymore. Or I have to get up so early in the morning to go to work that I don't have time to read my Bible. I'm so tired when I get home that I'm short with my wife and I'm angry with my kids. Is that helping you be more and more like Jesus? No, it's not. So even though the, God, the God's word doesn't say, don't buy new Nissan Sentras, it does have something to say about whether or not that's the right decision for you. Follow? This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now let's notice what Paul has to say about our distinctiveness, picking it up in verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's the first line of verse 3. Then he says, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God. Now, you thought I was really messing with you and digging into your private life when I was talking about what car and car payments you have. Now, let's walk down this road for a little stretch. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would be more and more, that you would live and act and be more like Jesus every day. That's God's will for you always in every area of your life. But here's one area of your life where the rubber really meets the road, okay? And it's in the area of our sexuality and our purity, if we are truly going to be in this process of progressing in our holiness, if we're truly going to be 
becoming more and more like Christ, then there are going to be some distinctions in our lives between us and those who do not know God. Agreed? Make sense? Okay. And one major area is our purity. Listen, folks, there's all kinds of sin in the world, obviously. I know that. I've walked on this earth for almost 49 years. I've seen a whole heck of a lot of it. But today, 2019, a major area that our country struggles with, that our world struggles with, is sexuality, impurity. Paul says you need to, as a Christ follower, you need to abstain from it. It means stay clear of it. It really means don't even get close to it. Don't even get close to it. To what? To sexual immorality. That's a general term. It literally means a selling off of your purity. In other words, God has given you this purity. He has given you this gift of your sexuality, and you choose to sell it for something. You choose to give it up for something. That's how the word is used. And it's general. It really means every kind of adultery or premarital sex or pornography or homosexuality, anything that's outside of God's design, which is physical intimacy between a husband and wife. It's common even in our churches, maybe for some of you that are here this morning, to say, that's too strict a standard, and that can't be done in our culture. Or you might say something like, it's, it's not realistic to expect from young people anymore, teenagers or young adults. Actually, believe it or not, the culture that Paul was writing to in Thessalonica was worse than our culture today. It's hard to believe because our culture is really spiraling down the porcelain throne in the area of morality, for sure. But Thessalonica was worse. It was worse. In fact, we think marital fidelity is, you know, archaic in our culture. Well, we don't. Hopefully you don't. But as Christ followers, we don't. But in our world, it seems archaic. The thought of fidelity, faithfulness to one person for your entire adult life, we think that's crazy and a little out of date as a whole in our country. But in Thessalonica, in the first century uh, Greco-Roman culture that they lived in, marital fidelity was non-existent. I mean, it was just expected that you would have a spouse for procreation, to have children, and then you would have a mistress or someone on the side for recreational purposes. That was expected. That was widely known. You didn't even go into marriage expecting fidelity. It was just the way that it was. Slave girls and slave boys were frequent targets of this kind of impurity. If you went to the temple in Thessalonica because you wanted to worship the idol that was holding sway over the people there, one of the ways you worshipped, see my air quotes, in that temple was to be with one of the prostitutes. That was the accepted way of worship. 
And so when Paul says this is the standard that we are called to as Christ followers, I want you to understand that he is saying this to new Christians who are living in the middle of this kind of culture. And not only living in the middle of it, a few months before that, they were doing it. And he said, this is the standard. So please do not deceive yourselves into thinking this is just something written 2,000 years ago and if Paul was living today, he wouldn't write this because you can't expect that in our culture. Don't give me that bull because it was worse then than it is now. Paul says you need to be distinct from that. You need to learn to know how to control your own body. Our culture says, that's ridiculous. This is nature. Don't stifle that. In our children, in our teenagers, in our young adults, don't stifle that. Just do whatever comes naturally. That's healthy. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. We don't do that with any of our other appetites, do we? Of course not. You don't just eat anything and everything that you want, right? Well, (laughs) you shouldn't. Listen, folks, I have a weakness. When I wake up in the morning, I feel like it's time for ice cream. I'm not kidding you. I'm not trying to be funny. I am telling you the truth. I could eat ice cream at least twice a day, every day for the rest of my life. But I don't do it because I know it's not healthy for me. Ice cream, pizza, burgers, and fries. I would be good with that every day for the next 40 years, except the 40 years would down to about two and I'd be done. But we don't do that. No, what do we say? Take care of your body. You can't indulge that appetite all the time. But our sexual appetite, our culture says, go for it. Sleep. We don't just sleep all the time, anytime that we want to. We got to get up. We got to go to work. I'm like everybody else. When my alarm goes off at six o'clock, I don't want to get out of bed, but I've got to. And I learn to control my body. It's time to get up. You got to eat healthier. You got to do stuff to take care of yourself. Those are appetites that we control. Paul says you have to do the same thing with your purity. Learn how to control it. Verse 5, not like everybody else around you. Guys, I know that we live in an immoral world. I'm not blind, deaf, and dumb. I see it. I hear it, but it's possible with God's help. God tells us we can live a holy life, and we should. Let's move on. Verse 6, our family, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Paul talked at length about our connectedness, about our love for each other. And what he's saying here is this, man, when we look around, when we're together as the body of Christ, and we think about our purity and abstaining from all of these things. What Paul is saying here is, hey, remember, guys, 
Every young lady, every woman that you see around here is your sister. And gals, every young man and every guy that you see walking around here is your brother. You don't steal from your brother. You don't steal from your sister. We're connected. And this kind of sexual sin is always self-focused. Paul is saying, don't take advantage of those that are around you for your own benefit. It's wrong. And by the way, God is the avenger of those things. And that will be punished. Verse 7, our calling. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Friends, the Father did not send Jesus Christ to the cross to give his life and suffer so that you and I could live the same way we always have. It's ridiculous. He has called us to live a holy and distinct and pure life. And then in verse 8, our warning. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Friends, this is not about what I think. You may or may not agree with what I'm saying here this morning. You may agree to it to some extent, but not as far as I've gone. You know what? Okay. But this isn't about what I think. This is about what God is commanding us. God's will for you is your progression in holiness. And you may be saying, but it's too late for me. I already messed up my purity. I already messed up my marriage. I already messed up my mind. I already messed everything up. But friends, it's not too late Because the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus gave you a new life and a new heart and a new strength and a new family. It's not too late. When is the best time to plant an oak tree? 30 years ago. Second best time? Today. When is the best time to be pure? Well, obviously, always the next best time, today. God is calling us to live in holiness and in purity. Now, you say, what do I know of holiness? What do I know about this stuff? Well, you know what? Nothing apart from Christ. Nothing for sure. And so my challenge for you as we listen to this song is that you would throw yourself on the mercy of God today and that I would do the same and that we would ask for his grace that we might live holy lives. Mm -hmm.